In Alabama, at least four dead after someone brought a gun to a sweet 16. This is a small community, and they just want to enjoy the birthday party and never knew that this would be going on. For Sunday, April 16th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Nadworny. This hour, my story about two kindergarten friends separated by Russia's war on Ukraine. Daniel loves her because she's not so girlish. He likes to play with cars. And we head to South Carolina to a prison where incarcerated mothers are writing lullabies for their children. It was something that I could do for them to let them know, hey, mom's still here and you're always on my mind. All that first, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In the small town of Dadeville, Alabama, at least four people are dead, more than a dozen injured, after someone opened fire at a Sweet 16 birthday party last night. As Tri Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports, police are tightly controlling the investigation. After a long and agonizing night for some parents who waited to learn if their children were among those killed, police held their first press conference mid-Sunday morning. At that time, they did not release the names of the victims or the suspects, choosing instead, as Dadeville Police Chief Jonathan Floyd did, to reassure residents about the safety of the community. Please do not let this moment define what you think about the city of Dadeville and our fine people. Multiple prayer vigils are being held across the community, and police are promising that new information will be shared at a press conference scheduled for later in the day. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Dadeville, Alabama. And another mass shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. At least two people were killed, several others injured, when shots were fired into a crowd gathered at a park last night. Louisville police say hundreds of people were in the park at the time, and they haven't identified the shooter yet, and there's no word on a motive. It's the city's second mass shooting in less than a week, miles from the old National Bank, where a gunman opened fire on colleagues, killing five people before police shot and killed him. President Biden reacting to the shootings this weekend says the country is once again grieving for those injured and killed. In a statement, he says guns are the leading killer of children in America, and Biden once again called on Congress to enact gun legislation. United Nations says battling military forces in Sudan agreed to a three-hour humanitarian ceasefire today, but the fighting goes on in Khartoum and other cities between Sudan's army and a powerful paramilitary group. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports more than 50 civilians have died. Hundreds of others have been injured since the fighting broke out yesterday. The UN announced that both Sudan's army and the Rapid Support Forces had agreed to a short ceasefire from 4 p.m. local time to address the rapidly escalating humanitarian situation. But reports of fighting continued even during the ceasefire. Many in Sudan, trapped by the fighting, are in increasingly desperate need of food, water and medical supplies. Meanwhile, the World Food Programme said it was suspending operations after its workers were killed in the violence in North Darfur. The army and the RSF were meant to integrate as part of a fragile transition to civilian rule, but are now locked in a bitter fight over who will lead the country. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. In Boston, nearly 30,000 runners are expected to participate in the 127th Boston Marathon that takes place tomorrow. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Authorities say two missing Medford men were murdered. The bodies of Pavel Veshin and Kirill Shukin were discovered this weekend in a storage unit in Brighton. The Middlesex District Attorney announced that another Medford man, who knew the married couple, is being charged with murder. The victims were missing for several weeks. Tens of thousands of runners from around the world are preparing for the 127th Boston Marathon, and WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says the conditions should be comfortable for the competitors. No historic weather expected for tomorrow. In fact, temperatures should be perfect for runners, starting in the upper 40s then rising into the low to mid 50s. Skies will be overcast, but there will be scattered showers around. So my big concern, of course, is that will take away body heat from marathoners and make the roads a little bit slick where it's wet. People are advised not to drive into Boston tomorrow, in addition to the marathon. The Red Sox will play their traditional morning game at Fenway Park, Tomorrow night at the Garden, the Bruins open the playoffs. Police Commissioner Michael Cox is urging people to be patient as they try to move around the city. Take public transportation and give yourself plenty of time to get where you need to. With all the thousands of people coming into the city, this is a very busy and exciting time, but we still need the public support to make sure that we're all safe. The MBTA will be operating on a regular weekday schedule. However, Copley Station will be closed because of the crowds on Boylston Street. Commuter Rail is offering a special $15 pass for unlimited trips. Lexington and Concord, two other communities that will be bustling with activity tomorrow. The Battle of Lexington to be reenacted just before dawn. In Concord, the Patriots Day Parade will commemorate the events of April 19, 1775. In sports, the Red Sox beat the Angels 2-1 at Fenway Park this afternoon. And again, the two teams meet tomorrow morning at 11 in the traditional Patriots Day game. In the forecast, patchy drizzle, maybe some rain overnight, 40s. Tomorrow, Marathon Monday, patchy fog early, then showers likely, and a chance of mid-afternoon thunderstorms. Temps tomorrow in the mid-50s, partly sunny 60s on Tuesday. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. Dadeville, Alabama is the site of this country's latest mass shooting. It happened last night at a Sweet 16 birthday party. Four people were killed and many others were wounded. The mayor of Dadeville, Jimmy Frank Goodman, spoke earlier today at a vigil calling for the violence to stop. We are a close-knitted city. And we don't, how to put it, we don't cater to saying white or black because we are all one. That's right. That's the way God wanted it to be. We're going to speak with Kyle Gassett of Troy Public Radio, who's been in Dadeville since early this morning, and he joins us now. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Alyssa. So, Kyle, what do we know about what happened? Well, not a lot. There's only been one law enforcement briefing so far, and it was many hours ago. What we're told is that four people died and a multitude of others were shot at a Sweet 16 birthday party, and that's about it. Mm. We did speak to a local hospital, which said they treated 15 shooting victims. Others, we know, went to a neighboring health facility, and some of the most critical were flown by helicopter to Birmingham. We don't know anything about a motive, a suspect, or anything about the timeline, other than it just started past 10.30 Saturday night. What more can you tell us about the birthday party? 
Well, it was being held at a dance studio in Dadeville, Alyssa. That's often rented out for parties and family gatherings and get-togethers. We know that there were many young people in attendance. The superintendent of the local school district said that as much in that press briefing earlier. One of those killed was the older brother of the girl celebrating her 16th birthday. I spoke to his grandmother this morning about a block away from the dance studio. She was awaiting word on what happened. Annette Allen was mourning his loss and was also angry about the prevalence of guns and how easy they are to obtain. Put the guns down, stop being violent, and get along with each other, and put God first from foremost. That's what they need to do, learn about God, and they would know not to be picking up guns and shooting, shooting and killing people, taking innocent people alive. Alyssa, she also says her daughter was among those who were, who were also shot. So sadly, these mass shootings are becoming more common. I mean, it was just a week ago that five people were killed at a bank shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. What are people in Dadeville talking to you about today? Well, first off, Dadeville is a small place. There's only about 3,000 people that live here. It's about an hour from the state capital of Montgomery and not too far from Auburn University. It really is the kind of place where most folks know each other. So when people gathered for an afternoon vigil to honor those who were shot, the emotions were raw. Pastor Justin Freeman of New Canaan Baptist Church says the oft-repeated phrase that shootings can happen anywhere and that now that's proven true for his community. We never think about things like this. We see it, we read about it, we click on it, but that's never been us. So for us to experience something like this, it's, uh, it's shocking, it's surprising, it's, I mean, it's unfathomable, but it shows us that we're not exempt. Other speakers during the vigil focus on the kids and just needing to be there for them and not shielding them from what happened. Yeah, about those kids. I mean, it seems like a lot of people in the dance hall were young. What are officials doing to help them? We heard from the superintendent of the local school district who said they're not planning to cancel classes tomorrow, but they're going to have extra counselors on hand at every school district in the area. Their main job is to help kids get through this, to understand what happened, and just to be there to listen to them. At this point, Alyssa, we don't know how many of those shot were kids, but it is a lot and will clearly have an impact on them, both in the short and long term. That's Kyle Gassett of Troy Public Radio reporting today from Dadeville, Alabama. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in Groff versus DeJoy, a case that puts the issue of religious liberty front and center at the high court. It asks an important question. What kind of religious accommodation are employers reasonably expected to provide for their workers? Here to explain more about the case and its possible implications is Amy Howe. She's a longtime Supreme Court watcher who's a former editor and reporter for SCOTUS Blog. And she currently blogs at Howe on the Court. Amy Howe, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So before we dive into the case details, can you briefly just tell us the story behind this case and the central question? Sure. So the plaintiff in this case is a man named Gerald Groff, who lives in Pennsylvania. He is an evangelical Christian. He believes that Sundays should be a day of rest and worship, so he doesn't want to work on Sundays. He went to work for the U.S. Postal Service in 2012, and his desire not to work on Sundays was initially not a problem, Mm. but it became a problem later 
including after the Postal Service signed a contract to deliver Amazon packages. Mm. And so he would not work on Sundays. They needed him to work on Sundays. And so he was disciplined and eventually quit before he could be fired, he says. And so he went to federal court in Pennsylvania, arguing that the Postal Service had violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which requires an employer to reasonably accommodate an employee's religious beliefs and practices, as long as doing so does not create an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. And so the question in this case is, what does it mean to be an undue hardship? The Supreme Court has actually already answered this question in 1977 in a case called TWA versus Hardison. The Supreme Court said that an undue hardship is anything that imposes more than a trivial or minimal cost to the employer. And so Groff is asking the justices to overrule that decision. What is, is Gerald Groff's argument here? One of them is simply that the court in 1977 got it wrong. Hmm. He says when you look at the phrase undue hardship, that signals something that is more than just a trivial or minimal cost and that it's currently such a low bar that workers are effectively required to choose between their religion and their job. And then there's another question in the case that when you're talking about what it means to measure what an undue hardship is. What does the employer have to show about where the burden falls? Is it on the business itself or is it on his co-workers? And what about the federal government? What's their core argument? So they say this interpretation of the federal law has been in place since 1977. They say if Congress wanted to change this law, it could have. And so it's important to note here that this is different from, say, the Dobbs decision last term. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with it in which the the Supreme Court overturned the right to an abortion because that involved an interpretation of the Constitution, which only the Supreme Court can do. But here, when the Supreme Court is interpreting a federal law, Mm. the federal government says Congress can change it. And it hasn't done so. Recent religious freedom rulings by the Supreme Court have been met with criticism. I'm thinking about the Hobby Lobby decision, which ruled that some companies don't have to provide contraception to employees if it violates the company owner's faith. And there are cases where religious liberty is at odds with other rights, like LGBTQ rights. Have there been similar conversations among court watchers regarding this case? This is an interesting case because it's not necessarily one in which, if you look at the friend of the court briefs filed, necessarily break down on conservative liberal lines. Hmm. There are a wide range of religious groups who support Groff. You have, uh, you know, Sikh and Muslim and Seventh-day Adventist and Jewish groups. And they say that religious minorities are actually the most likely to need accommodations at work, even though this is a case involving an evangelical Christian. Um, but at the same time, those religious minorities are less likely to get the accommodations that they need because the bar is so low Hmm. for employees. But then on the other hand, there's a brief from local governments 
who say we are the country's largest employer and we want to be able to accommodate our employees' religious practices, but we can't always do so because we have budget constraints. Right. And if you raise the bar, you know, we may have to cut back on the services we provide. So a little more complicated than some of the other cases that tend to divide on just more sort of conservative, liberal lines. Yeah. Okay, before we let you go, I'd like to ask you about the recent revelations involving Justice Clarence Thomas. So earlier this month, ProPublica, the investigative news outlet, reported that for decades, Justice Thomas had accepted undisclosed gifts from billionaire Republican donor Harlan Crow. This includes flights on his private jet, trips on a yacht. Just this past week, it was reported that Crow purchased a property from Justice Thomas in 2014, which also was not disclosed. How has this news landed in the court? I mean, any sense of how people who work there are feeling about this kind of exposure? You know, there's no sense yet. You know, Justice Thomas released a statement in response to the first story by ProPublica, but he hasn't released a statement in response to the second story. I think you know, we may not necessarily see any effects from the outside right away. The Supreme mm. Court will be hearing arguments this, this week and next week. And then they're mostly going to be operating behind closed doors, except for issuing opinions between now and the end of June. But I certainly think it has to be a distraction and unwanted attention for the court that that none of the justices welcome. That's Amy Howe, former editor and reporter for SCOTUS blog, who now writes at Howe on the Court. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Stay with us at 6. It's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo What Makes You Happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash ssw. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store right now. It'll be patchy drizzle and maybe some rain overnight. 40s says some showers, 50s tomorrow. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Sister Act and Then There Were Nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, lyricstage.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. More mass shootings in the U.S. this weekend. In Dadeville, Alabama, several people are dead, many more injured in a shooting at a Sweet 16 birthday party last night. There's no word on a motive. And in Louisville, less than a week after the bank shooting that left five people dead, a gunman shot into a crowd at a park last night, killing at least two people and wounding several others. Police are searching for that gunman. President Biden says he's praying for the victims and is once again calling on Congress to pass gun control legislation.
And on Broadway, after more than 35 years, The Phantom of the Opera has its last performance tonight. It's the longest-running show in Broadway history. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadborny. There is this green classroom in Ukraine, in the northeast city of Kharkiv. And it has books and toys and little desks. It's a place where six-year-olds played and learned and laughed. I first visited last August. The school building had been hit by Russian artillery. There weren't any students there at the time. Schools have been closed since the war started. But two teacher's aides were injured. The head of school, Yana Sayanko, toured me around the colorful school. Windows were broken. There was dust and debris everywhere. But underneath, there was a hint at a life before. The lunch menu from the day of the Russian invasion, February 24th, still hung on the wall. Buckwheat soup and cabbage that was never served. Sayenko opens a row of lockers to find they're still filled with clothes and shoes. No. <laughs> As I was leaving, Yana said to me, It's not the damage to the school that I'm mourning. It's the destruction of childhood. I couldn't stop thinking about what had happened to the children who once learned here. Over the next weeks and months, I set out to find them. Hello. <laughs> Hello. The students in this kindergarten, they are scattered all across the world and Ukraine. Okay, will you tell me your name? Bogdan. In the western city of Lviv, near Poland. What's your name? Others are in Kyiv or towns further west. One remained in Kharkiv. When do you think about kindergarten? When? I think about the kindergarten before I fall asleep at night. I remember how it was, and I dream about what it would be if we were all back. I spent time with children who were having trouble sleeping and scared. They'd miss their friends. They were trying to remember and trying to forget, but they were also laughing and learning new languages and beginning to dream. Those stories of these 27 kindergartners, they make up just one classroom, but they also represent the millions of children from Ukraine who have left and who have stayed. Today, I want to tell you about two best friends. Both of their families left Ukraine. Let's start first with their teacher. 
The two friends met in Irina Sahan's bright green kindergarten class in the northeast Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. This is young love, Irina says, pointing to a yearbook photo where two blonde children are holding hands, smiling at the camera. Daniel Bizev and Aurora Demchenko. Aurora, headstrong with a big personality. Daniel, a good listener. They'd sit next to each other and giggle, sometimes distracting the other students. In the yellow yearbook Arena holds on her lap, they're in every photo together. That friendship, Arena's whole kindergarten class, came to an abrupt stop when Russia invaded Ukraine last February. Most of Arena's students are now scattered across Ukraine and the world. Those two best friends, Daniel and Aurora, they'd gone the farthest from home and from each other. Aurora in Spain and Daniel in America. I had so many questions. Were they still in touch? Did they remember each other? Had they made new friends? It's our pleasure to welcome you to Westchester County. Producer Lauren Magaki and I visited Daniel first. He now lives with his parents and two brothers in a white two-story house about an hour from New York City. A little bit different in Ukraine because, like, in Ukraine, you usually live in an apartment, but there's no upstairs. In the six months Daniel's been in the States, his English has flourished. He'd started learning years ago. His parents, mom Christina and dad Yevgeny, had been planning to emigrate to the U.S. since before Daniel was born. When the war happened, they moved up their timeline. Because we wanted to save our lives and the lives of uh, our children. So for us, it was obvious to leave. The house is pretty empty. They didn't take much with them. And Daniel's been missing his bedroom back in Kharkiv. There were so many books. So many stories. He's been making his own hand-drawn picture books to fill the space. This book is about monsters scared of the night. <laughs> he does have one special book he wants to show us. This is me, and this is me, and this is me. It's a version of that yearbook Irina Sahan showed us in Kharkiv. His mom got digital proofs and printed the book. <laughs> Where's Aurora? He points to a picture of the two of them. They're holding a basket together, smiling at each other. What's happening in that photo? Just standing next. Just standing next to her, huh? Yeah. What do you remember about her? Mm, she likes to play soccer. Daniel loves her because uh, she's not so girlish. She likes to play with cars. Yeah. She... His mom, Christina, pulls out her phone and scrolls to a video yeah. Daniel sent Aurora last mm, summer. Yeah, here it is. He says he misses her very much and please call me, I want to see you, just kisses for you. So is he still kind of hung up on her? I think so, yes, because he has a bear, big bear. It's a stuffed bear that he sleeps with each night. He says, I pretend that it's Aurora and I just hug her and I'm like, okay, so, yeah, it's, it's hard. I just couldn't imagine what's going on in his head and in his, like, soul. Christina and her husband, they're not sure exactly how to handle this. Daniel hasn't seen Aurora in a year, and now they live on different continents. Should we keep 
talking about her or just quit this um, topic at all. Aurora and her family, they never answered that video message Daniel sent. Was it too painful to stay in touch? Or had they just gotten busy adjusting to life in a new country? Nearly 4,000 miles away in Valencia, Spain, Aurora Demchenko now lives in a high-rise apartment with her parents and her three energetic brothers. When we meet Aurora, we were expecting that big personality her Kharkiv teacher described. But instead, she's shy and timid. I'm Alyssa. What's your name? Aurora. Life right now, it's a bit overwhelming. She's learning English at school and in the afternoons. She takes Zoom lessons in Ukrainian and Spanish. The apartment has a familiar emptiness, like Daniel's home. But there are a few reminders of Kharkiv, a painting in Ukrainian colors, and that yellow yearbook from the kindergarten. Aurora and her mom, Marina, spread out on the bed and leaf through the book. A friend of the kindergarten teacher, Irina Sahan, had brought it to Spain. The family drove two hours just to pick it up. As they look through, Marina points out pictures of Aurora and Daniel. Do you remember you always saved a seat for him? No, I don't remember, Aurora says. You were inseparable. I don't remember, Aurora says. Remember when your teacher would scold you for being too silly? Aurora shakes her head. No, Aurora repeats, it didn't happen. You have forgotten about this, haven't you, Marina says. She's surprised how much Aurora insists she doesn't remember. But research shows blocking out painful memories is one of the ways the brain tries to cope with trauma. Over homemade bowls of rizolnik, a dill, and pickle soup, the family tells us about when they first came to Valencia. Like many Ukrainian refugees, they've been granted temporary protection to live in Europe. Aurora's dad, Alex, remembers it was during Las Fayas, Valencia's week-long fire festival filled with loud music, parties, and fireworks in the street. Bah, 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 and, and it's, it's happened in the city center. Aurora, who had just fled different types of explosions, asked her parents, has the war come to Spain? Aurora, it's, it's bombing. We go in the basement. With so much change and uncertainty, the family has clung to reminders of home, like that yearbook and a single fork her 13-year-old brother Sasha brought from their kitchen in Kharkiv. Like accidentally, because like I used the same um, backpack for school, so like I accidentally took this in my bag. <laughs> now everyone fights yes. over it. For much of our visit, Aurora is glued to her big brother Sasha's side. I joined them on the floor playing Legos. Did you remember your classroom? Yes. While we build, I show Aurora photos of us visiting her kindergarten classroom in Kharkiv. This is a baby school. <laughs> this is a baby class. I try again to ask about Daniel, showing her photos of our trip to New York. Oh, I know that Daniel is in the U.S., she exclaims in Russian. He's a good artist, too, just like you. Yes. We scroll to a photo of Daniel's homemade book about monsters. I make two books. You did? Yeah. But those books are still in Kharkiv, she says, her eyes drifting, losing interest. Sasha leans over and whispers to her. Would you like to meet up with Daniel? Aurora is clearly uncomfortable, mumbling first in Russian, and then she stands up and storms off. 
I turn to translator Hanna Palmarenko. What is when, when he asks about Daniel, that's all. The interview's <laughs> over. Yes. I ask Sasha what he thinks is going on. I don't know, maybe because of the problems within Ukraine, maybe. Yeah, you think there's like a sadness? Yes. Maybe she thinks that she will not see any one of them. What is clear is that Aurora is processing all this in a very different way than Daniel, who's been going to sleep each night thinking of Aurora. After Spain, we wanted to check back in on Daniel. I just got a text message from Christina, Daniel's mom. Our visit in November, where we looked through the yearbook with him, it left him in tears for days. She says, happy to have you visit us, but please don't remind Daniel about Aurora. When we arrive in early February, it's just before dinner time, and Daniel and his brother Adam are playing in the living room. Their littlest brother Leo runs around in his diaper. Daniel's been taking breakdancing lessons after school and is demonstrating a headstand. That's how it makes it spin. These last several months, they've been filled with activities like breakdancing and soccer and swimming. As I'm interviewing Daniel, his dad arrives home from working in New York City, and he heads straight to me. Uh, please don't, uh, don't mention, yeah. you, you know. He's making sure I got Christina's message. Aurora, the kindergarten, it's off the table. He's uh, still probably in love with her. Since we visited in November, Christina sought out a psychologist at an event for Ukrainian refugees. So I asked about the situation of Aurora. And she said that it's fine to talk when he like set up uh, this conversation, not you. Just don't, don't remind him about that. And so they've been avoiding it, and we do too. Instead, we talk about football. Daniel is now a Bills fan. Let's see. I think I know this. And he's gotten some new books in Russian and Ukrainian to fill those empty shelves. Oh my goodness. That looks like so creepy. What does it say? Oh, I, I can't read in Russian and Ukrainian. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. This new strategy, staying busy, Christina says it's actually been working. It took time for him to understand that we are not going to see each other for a while. Daniel's really happy, she tells me a number of times. Now he talks about her like less and less. Maybe someday, she hopes, Daniel and Aurora will be reunited. Maybe when the war in Ukraine is over and they can share their new lives and new friends and neither of them will be sad. You're listening to NPR News. Robots descended on New York City's Times Square last week. No, they were not part of some dystopian movie set. The NYPD was showing off some robotic devices it's using to work alongside human officers. And while police are excited, some New Yorkers are worried about privacy or they just think it's creepy. Samantha Max of member station WNYC has this story. 
Mayor Eric Adams and New York City police officials gathered just steps away from the billboards and flashing lights to show off three high-tech gadgets. NYPD Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell says the department has a long history of being out in front of using new technologies, from fingerprints to the 911 system. In every era, we have maximized public and officer safety through emerging technology, and that approach continues today. One gadget called the Star Chase lets officers shoot a GPS device onto a car so they can track it without a high-speed pursuit. Another device called the K5 looks kind of like a tiny rocket ship on wheels and has cameras and microphones that can control a designated area. And then there are the black and yellow DigiDogs. These robots have four legs and can navigate sidewalk curbs or walk up and down the stairs. The NYPD is buying two of them to go into dangerous situations like hostage negotiations or bomb threats. Here's Sewell again. Our job is to fight crime and keep people safe. And these tools are significant steps forward in that vital mission. Technology has become a big part of policing, from gunshot detection systems to drones and body cameras. But robots roaming city streets is a whole different level. Ashley Johnson with the Washington, D.C.-based Information Technology and Innovation Foundation says it's important that officers be properly trained and that laws or policies are in place to protect people's privacy. Johnson says the cost of a lot of these technologies puts them out of reach for smaller departments. Is the benefit in terms of hours saved or lives saved worth the potential upfront cost? The NYPD is spending $750,000 on its two new DigiDocs and tens of thousands more to lease the Star Chase and K5 devices. So it's not a very accessible technology for your average police department. Mayor Adams says the cost is worth it. In fact, he says this is just the beginning and that city officials are scanning the globe for other gadgets that can make New York safer. This is not paying and wasting. This is an investment in our public safety. The NYPD tried to use the DigiDog a few years ago, but got rid of it amid major public outcry. Now it's back, and many New Yorkers aren't happy. They want the city to spend money on libraries and housing and schools. Some people are also worried about Big Brother-like surveillance. Here's Albert Fox Khan with the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. I promise that if there's a series of new technologies, there's going to be a series of new lawsuits. After the big demonstration in Times Square, people crowded in to get a glimpse of the robots. Preacher Loke Amadeus from the Bronx says he doesn't want devices to invade his privacy. Amadeus, who's Black, also says sending robots into neighborhoods could further erode trust between police and people of color. It's hard to get people to express humanity on both sides, be it the police or my community. So to think that a robot is going to express humanity is really crazy. And he says he doesn't like it. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Coming up at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 
The Red Sox made it three straight over the Angels with a 2-1 win this afternoon at Fenway Park. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Our Planet Live in Concert. The Netflix series is now a live concert event coming to Emerson Colonial Theater on April 23rd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. Soaring Hawk Meditation Center. Celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at soaringhawkcenter.com. And Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Bright and at cambridgenaturals.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Sudan, dozens of civilians are dead, hundreds more injured, as the country's military and a powerful paramilitary group continue fighting for control for a second day. Heavy fighting is reported around the airport, which is now closed, and a military compound despite diplomatic requests to cease fire and return to talks. In Ukraine, more than a dozen people have been killed by Russian missile attacks over this Orthodox Easter holiday weekend. And in Boston, nearly 30,000 runners are expected to participate in the 127th Boston Marathon that takes place tomorrow. Yesterday marked the 10th anniversary of the bombing attack on the race that left three people dead, hundreds of others injured. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. Around the world, Orthodox Christians are celebrating Easter today. For Ukrainians, it's the second time they're marking the occasion since Russia's invasion a year ago. This time last year, Ukraine had just thrown Russian troops out of the suburbs of Kyiv. Today, the battle in Kyiv is religious, as Ukraine's government attempts to shut down an allegedly pro-Russian religious group. NPR's Yulian Haida has this postcard from the Caves Monastery in Kyiv. I'm walking down a stone staircase, hunched to avoid hitting my head on the lime-washed cave roof. Candlelight is the only thing lighting up this labyrinth. There are dozens of niches housing the preserved bodies of saints under thin panes of glass. Every sign says 11th century, 13th century, 12th century, dates that the Ukrainian government is quick to say were centuries before Moscow or Russia as we know today was ever put on the map. For all the noise upstairs, it's very quiet down here. Upstairs and outside, it's raining. And I run into a monk, Archimandrite Paul, on the sidewalk in the monastery complex. We have uh, all right to be here because uh, monks uh, built uh, this monastery. We inherited this monastery from first uh, monks. And perhaps we are 
last monks. Father Paul belongs to a group calling itself the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which until a year ago swore unwavering allegiance to the Patriarch in Moscow. And that's one of the reasons why Ukraine's culture ministry, which owns and maintains the UNESCO-protected monastery complex, wants the hundreds of monks who live here to leave. We aren't afraid. We understand uh, completely that nobody can help us. The monks ignored an eviction notice last month, and they're hoping a Ukrainian court can help them keep their lease. I ask Father Paul why he thinks this is happening. Uh, have you ever read Revelation? Revelation, the part of the Bible that refers to the end of days. Father Paul paints a grim picture about the future of Ukraine and the world, and he's not the only one. At least three other people I met here talk about an impending apocalypse. They blame a militaristic, atheist, decadent West for it. Before sunrise this morning on Easter Sunday, hundreds of people emerge from a dark fog with their Easter baskets, crowding in front of the monastery's main church. As smoke vanishes, so let the wicked vanish. May their wrongdoings spill like wax before the fire, chants Father of Rami. He leads a competing group of Ukrainian-speaking monks that want to take over the monastery complex. They're aligned with a group called the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which is more liberal and progressive. They're pro-European and have frequently met with Western officials. The government has recently allowed this group to access the complex. Today's service was guarded by hundreds of police officers to prevent any clashes between the two competing groups. Father Oris Jehalo is one of the priests of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. He thanks the government for letting them in and says he never thought he'd ever be celebrating Easter in the same place as Kyiv's founders did 1,000 years ago. Unlike the fire and brimstone message of the other monks, he says Easter is a time of hope. A holiday that marks Jesus' victory over death inspires him to believe Ukraine's war is not a lost cause. Julian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. When someone is pregnant and they're incarcerated, separation after they give birth is almost immediate. Many new mothers contend with emotional surges and anxieties during this time. But for those serving time, there's the additional formidable physical barrier. At a women's prison outside Columbia, South Carolina, a project is underway to help reconnect a few mothers with their children through the creation of lullabies. This is only a moment. Please don't forget me. Fill my arms around you. You are the best of me, Mama's world. That's Ashley. We're only using her first name here. She's incarcerated at the Graham Camille Griffin Correctional Institution. And she's taking part in the prison's pilot songwriting program, working with graduate students from the University of South Carolina School of Music. I was overjoyed. I was happy about being able to do this, but I have no, like, music training or anything, so it was a whole learning experience for me. But all I did was, you know, thought about my kids and then just started writing what I would say, what I would want to say to them. The women enrolled in the Lullaby Project are expecting mothers, along with some, like Ashley, who've recently delivered. 
The creative process in music doesn't always follow the timing of a gestational clock. So the song-making teams of graduate students, their professor, and the women incarcerated in the South Carolina prison continue their work even after a woman has her baby. We wrote down the words and everything, and we told him, hey, we want it like this. Like, I, I wanted mine kind of a Disney theme. I just went off the songs that I, how I wanted it to sound. I was like, I wanted a little bit of Little Mermaid, Part of Your World, and then the song off of Beauty and the Beast when they dance together at, like, the end. Together, the grad students and the mothers chart out lyrics, workshop the melodies, and collaborate on the layers of musicality needed to get the lullabies just right for a vocalist with the university. All right. So Ashley has a a chorus going here. Claire Bryant is a professor at the University of South Carolina School of Music. Oh, Mama's World. As people out in the in the world, we maybe don't think about incarcerated mothers. We do not ask them about why they're there. That's not our business. That's not why we're there. We try to make them feel like just human beings making music. Bryant participated as a student when the Lullaby Project initiative began over a decade ago through the Wild Music Institute at Carnegie Hall in New York City and in 2022, worked to pilot the program at the Graham Camille Griffin Correctional Institution. You know, incarcerated people will be coming back to our communities. They will be part of our society. They are part of our society. They are human beings. And who do we want coming back? And how do we want them to spend their incarceration? Ashley has five children, including her most recent she says the hardest part of this is being away from them as she counts down the days till her parole or release. And she says the good graces of the students is not lost on those serving out their sentences. It's, it, yeah, they could be volunteering anywhere else, like, like an elementary or something, but they took their time to come to a prison. And even though we are here for crimes and we are sitting here being punished and everything. We're still human and we still have families that care about us and everybody makes mistakes and we're here paying for our mistakes. So any mother out there that has kids and they're your world, let them know it. Gabe and Izzy, y'all mean so much. Not enough words can describe how much. Y'all are mama and daddy's world. We will always be here for you through the ups and downs. You will never have to question how much you are loved. Please slow down. Don't grow up so fast. Y'all are our hearts, Mama and Daddy's world. This is only a moment. Please don't forget me. Feel my arms around you. You are the best of me.
That was the musical Lullaby, co-produced by Claire Bryant and her students at the University of South Carolina School of Music, and co-written by Ashley, a mother of five, serving out her sentence at the Graham Camille Griffin Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. Each Friday brings lots of new music, but this past week brought what may be the biggest crop of the year so far. We've got new albums from Metallica, The Tallest Man on Earth, Chief Keef, Feist, and more. So to help us wade through all of it, we asked NPR Music's Stephen Thompson to bring a couple of his favorites. Stephen, welcome. Hey, Alyssa. So we just mentioned Feist. She's got a new album out called Multitudes, and I know you're a big fan. Let's hear a little bit of the song of Womankind. But it took a while, I tried to try and fix the past a task. You cannot hope to do, and I commiserate with you who made the parallel mistakes that I don't do her grain. Praise, climb above the mountainside. Protest songs are in our eyes. Who we'll lift up like a flock of birds? Tell me what you're hearing there. Well, what I'm hearing is an artist who is so confident in what she's doing that she's able to build all of this air and all of this space into her arrangements. And so, you know, she's always been very, very good at kind of layering her own voice on top of itself in intriguing ways. But this record, the first time I heard it, I just let it wash over me. I just let the sound of this record wash over me because it is so soothing and so beautiful and so carefully arranged that I just kind of swam around in it and didn't really even, didn't really even like listen very closely to some of the stuff that she's saying in it. And then you start to kind of pick apart her her song craft and her lyrics and then kind of read about where she's coming from with this record. Like a few years ago, she adopted a child and then immediately the pandemic happened, which <laughs> parenting is hard enough as it is. And shortly thereafter, her father died. And so she's standing at this crossroads of birth and death in a way. And she's, she's looking at life in these really thoughtful and interesting ways. And then she wrote a record about it. Feist is known for you know songs like One, Two, Three, Four, and I Feel It All, these kind of light, lilting, buoyant songs. And there's a little bit of that on this record too. Let's hear a little bit of the song, Borrow Trouble. Even before your eyes are open, the plot has thickened around your fear. We foot tapping. I'm here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's still there's still a, a certain kind of buoyancy to her sound. If you got into her with kind of those early singles, she's still making music that has a, a certain sway to it, but everything just feels deeper and richer throughout this record. This is going to be one of my favorite albums of 2023, and I'm I'm so it's excited. It's only April. It's only April, man. You know, you got to think about this stuff 12 months a year. You, you can't just you can't just line up at the end of the year and be like, yeah, what did no, I listen it's to? True. It's true. <laughs> so should we stay with Feist or you want to go elsewhere? Let's go to let's go to let's go to Black Thought. Ooh, okay. 
This is the new album called Glorious Game, right? It's the rapper Black Thought from The Roots called El Maiko's Affair. Where every time I lift my ship up off the ground, it's landed to my disadvantage. Though maybe I am but a gambit in hell to another standard. All right, what are you, what are you thinking? Okay, so Black Thought has been one of the absolute best rappers in the business for 30 years, right? Like the first Roots record came out in 1993, 30 years ago, and he's been making amazing music ever since, rapping over a live band. And that's, you know, that's his specialty. This time he's working with a soul band called the El Michaels Affair, and it's like, you know, this big band, they call their sound Cinematic Soul, which I think describes it perfectly. It's like really great movie scores. So they're providing this dense, rich, soulful sound that give Black Thought space to lay down, no pun intended, thought after thought after thought. You know, just ideas upon ideas upon ideas. And if you've ever watched like the viral video of Black Thought rapping on Hot 97, Funkmaster Flex asks him to freestyle and, and Black Thought goes for 10 minutes just like off the top of his head. And it's not just rhyming, it's like, it's got rhymes within rhymes and the rhythms and cadences are exactly right. And you're just like, how does this guy's brain work this way? And listening to, to the album, you even heard it just in that little sample. You're just immediately in the pocket with him. Okay, let's listen to some more of that then, a song called Grateful. Three for the money, two for the hustle, and one for the nighttime spread over the city like a comforter. Prime time for the predators who come to hunt for the chunks. Okay, well, you've certainly, like, given me <laughs> so much to listen to for, like, the next, I don't know, weeks and weeks and weeks. I love this. Yeah, I'm going to be listening to both these albums over and over again in the coming weeks. But, you know, there'll be a whole new wave of music next Friday. Out of respect for the dead, the names is changed. When Booby Pop lived in his wig, his aim was flames. Stephen Thompson, you are the guest host of this week's episode of New Music Friday from All Songs Considered. If you want to hear more of his picks... You can go to nprmusic.org. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Anytime, Alyssa. Thanks so much. Yeah.